If the question is, what does the Constitution mean in this specific case, and it gets to the Supreme Court, they do decide finally. If the question is, what is the ultimate meaning of the provision of the Constitution on which they make their decision, or what is the ultimate meaning of the Constitution as a whole, in the end, a lot of people have a lot of say about that pretty soon. That is to say, the court does, but also the president does and the Congress does. But then finally, the people do, because the means are in their hands through elections and through the amendment process, if it takes it, to state their own view of what the Constitution means, and they have the sovereign authority to do that. Welcome to this final lecture in the Hillsdale College online course on the Supreme Court. Uh, I'm Larry Arn. I work at the college and teach at the college. And uh, my lecture, the concluding lecture, is on the Supreme Court today, a serious subject that animates and uh, worries many people. Uh, in the last lecture, I said that uh, the independent judiciary is a pillar of free government, and you can't have it without that, and gave reasons for that. And I said that judicial review was a necessary deduction from having a constitution that's the supreme law of the land made by the people, and then lesser laws made by the legislature are inferior to it, in fact, only empowered by it. And uh, I gave Alexander Hamilton's argument about that, and also just the logical fact that it follows. I also said that that power was limited in ways that I'm going to explore a little further today, because today we live in a time when that power is asserted to be by Supreme Court justices, uh, unlimited. Um, and so we're going to explore that a little bit today. Um, in fact, just as the government has become dangerous, in my opinion, to the liberties of the people in ways that are growing intense, uh, so the court has become uh, dangerous today, and for the same reasons. And uh, I'm going to try to illustrate that mainly by the examples of two people William Brennan, very great Supreme Court justice, whom uh, Anthony, Antonin Scalia, who died of late, alas, said was the most influential justice on the Supreme Court in the 20th century. And also uh, Anthony Kennedy. Uh, it's an interesting fact that both of those people were Republican appointees, and that means that I'm not going to be making any partisan points today. I generally don't. Um, to understand Brennan, I'm just going to talk about one thing he wrote. It's a serious paper he gave in 1985 at Georgetown University. It means that he prepared the paper. It's not just quotes from something he said somewhere. And uh, the topic of the paper was, uh, it was in a conference called Text and Teaching. So a bunch of people who were teachers uh, talked about how they teach certain texts. And he said at the beginning of his that the text he was going to adopt was the Constitution of the United States, which he did know a very great deal about and teach. And he makes the obvious point early on that he's not like the other teachers here in regard to this particular text. His relationship with this text is different than the relationship teachers have with the text. It's easy to see why that is. Uh, I teach Aristotle here, but... Uh, I don't have a legal power to say what Aristotle means. And uh, the law doesn't change by what I say about Aristotle. If somebody doesn't like it, they'll argue with me. And uh, 
They do, a lot. Uh, Hillsdale College classes are fun in part because that happens all the time. And Justice Brennan points out that uh, he's not a teacher in the normal sense. In what sense is he? Well, he lays all that out. Um, he says that the Constitution saves, uh, serves three things. Uh, they are social justice, brotherhood, and human dignity. Now, that's an interesting thing, because he said in the introduction that he's tied to the Constitution, but it's actually true that none of those terms occur in the Constitution. He says that's what the Constitution's all about, but he doesn't say how he knows that, uh, he, and he doesn't quote the Constitution. Um, he doesn't mention freedom, which in the preamble of the Constitution is stated to be a vital purpose of the Constitution. One could argue the vital purpose although there are other purposes that are also vital to it. Uh, the preamble, I'll remind you, says, secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our uh, posterity. Now, it's an interesting point about the Constitution that uh, there's more than one reason why the Constitution may fail to mention things like that. Uh, one reason might be because it doesn't believe in things like that. It's not asserted to uh, secure social justice. By social justice, the way we use the term today, it means mostly uh, taking something from people who have it and giving to people who don't. Um, uh, brotherhood, uh, the, the Declaration of Independence does occur to our British brethren. Um, and uh, what was the last one? Uh, human dignity. That word dignity comes from an old word that means worth or worthiness. Uh, it's a fact that humans have a different kind of dignity than other beings. Uh, the founding argues lower than the angels and above the beast. But it's certainly not true that it is uh, the thought of the American Revolution that people are all equal in dignity. Uh, compare, for example, Mother Teresa and Joseph Stalin. Uh, they didn't have the same dignity. I don't think. And I think that's an objective fact. I think you just think about it and you can see. One of them, after all, uh, gave her life to serve people who were poor and sick and in terrible need and uh, shared exposure to their diseases. And the other one killed people like that on a really big scale. And they hadn't done anything wrong. So maybe the Constitution doesn't agree with those terms. I, I don't, in those meanings that I just gave. But another reason is the Constitution is not really about that. Uh, if you read the Constitution and read the Declaration of Independence, actually read them in the other order, you will find out that they sound really different. Uh, the Declaration of Independence is full of resounding phases, uh, phrases that echo down through the ages friend of mine died lately, Mr. Stram, a really great man, Peter, uh, was a Hungarian immigrant. And he loved to tell the story that the, at the end of the Hungarian Revolution, when the Soviet tanks came in, that the last radio station they took played over and over again until the troops came in and shut it down, a reading of the Declaration of Independence. There's something about that document that speaks to everyone all the time when in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve this, so think how general that is, right? Not qualified as to time or place, uh, 
to dissolve the political bands that have connected with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them. And then we hold these truths to be self-evident. Everybody knows those phrases. Even if they, many people today, polls show, can't really identify that they go with the Declaration of Independence, but the guesses that they make show that they know that that's some very, from some very important American document. The Constitution is much harder to quote than that. Only the preamble sounds like that. And the preamble we know from long experience and, and thought and also from simple logic is not an independent grant of power to the government. Because if it were, then all of the distinct grants of power in the government would be redundant. In other words, you wouldn't list the things in Article One, Section 8 the, the, the Congress can do if it could do all of those things in the preamble. And so the, the, the document wouldn't make sense if that's what the preamble was for. The preamble is lovely and it's important, but it actually is not fulfilling of the prime purpose of the Constitution. And I can tell you what that is. Uh, turns out the prime purpose of the Declaration of Independence is actually to state the reasons for there to be a United States of America and the reasons why they would rebel against the most powerful man on earth, the King of England and his nation. Uh, and that means that that is a, a statement of final causes. That is to say, what ultimately drives us to do this? What is the thing that we desire that makes it right for us to make war and risk our lives? What will be the driving purpose of the nation that they would found, which, of course, grew across a whole continent and has become a marvel, one of the greatest nations on earth? Whatever you think of it, you have to agree to that. The Declaration of sounds inspiring because it just happens to be very good at that job of stating the reasons. And, of course, those reasons were urgently needed at the time because a whole bunch of people had to unite and make war at great risk to themselves, and they do that better if they're told why. Something that will resonate with them, something that will move them, something that will move people down through the ages, it turns out, the Declaration does. Move the founders of this college, our oldest building, having been founded on the 4th of July, with a speech by one of my predecessors about the Declaration of Independence, and the speech is lovely. I'm Wish I could give it. So lovely. So the Constitution is not like that. It's not a document about why. It's a document about how. And you could see that that would be necessary too, right? Because the Declaration of Independence even implies that it would be necessary. It says in the middle that the king has done a bunch of bad stuff, and those are the reasons why we're right to do this thing. And if you just think in negative terms or just read them and think what they mean, it means that if you fail to have representative government, if you fail to have separation of powers, if you fail to have an independent judiciary, then that's bad. And anybody that you're governing that way is right to rebel against you, which means that the Declaration of Independence is saying we need a system that has those features. In other words, a how a way of proceeding to do whatever we do that meets those requirements which, taken as a body, amount to consent of the governed. That's what the Constitution is about. And it's not about 
these things that he lists, social justice and brotherhood and human dignity, that's not its tone. Those points and points like that are supplied elsewhere in the American Revolution. And I'm telling you, that's obvious from reading the documents, but it's also true that that's the account of the people who wrote it and, and, uh, and, uh, and ratified it. That means all of the people who did that in the Constitution. So that means that just to start with, Justice Brennan has got a different idea of the function of the Constitution. And that idea is to give him a general power to pursue those aims that he names that are not in the Constitution. Not also, by the way, in the Declaration of Independence. And that leads to something tricky. Also, I think something dangerous. to find the place where he says what his power is, what the court does. Oh, yeah. In this paper he's giving, remember, about how teaching a text is taught, and he's saying this, this, uh, this, this text he doesn't exactly just teach. He says this text he defines. And, and here's the quote. Consequences flow from the justice's interpretation in a direct and immediate way. A judicial decision respecting the incompatibility of Jim Crow, those are laws that say that blacks, segregation laws is what those are, prevailed in America, North and South for a very long time after the Civil War and before. So he's using that as an example that this is incompatible with the constitutional guarantee of equality, which, by the way, is an excellent point and true, is not simply by the justice a contemplative exercise. It is an order supported by the full coercive power of the state that the present society change in a fundamental aspect. An order from a judge or a majority of nine judges that the whole society has got to change. And it's dispositive, he, he says repeatedly. It's our job to bring meaning to the Constitution, not find what it means and do that. How can we swear an oath to uphold a thing? Well, I guess it's actually easy if you think about it. I can swear an oath to uh, be faithful to my wife for the rest of my life. Now, in my particular case, because I happen to be married way above myself, that's not hard for me. I adore that woman. But, you know, if I got to decide, decide every day what faithful means, that would be a really easy promise to keep, wouldn't it? And if I get to decide all the time what the Constitution means and say for good and all what it means, which he repeats in this, in this essay, in this speech several times, compare it to Lincoln. I read this from Lincoln last time. I'm going to read it again. He says, full coercive power of the state that the present society change in the fundamental aspect. And he also says in other places in the essay that we decide finally what the Constitution means. Here's what Lincoln says about that terrible Dred Scott decision. The candid citizen must confess that if the policy of the government upon vital questions affecting the whole people is to be irrevocably fixed by decisions of the Supreme Court, the instant they are made, 
In ordinary litigation between parties, in personal actions, the people will have ceased to be their own rulers. In other words, if they really are a tribunal that says whatever it means, then they're the man, right? That's it. And that's what he thinks. And I want to insert here, in case I forgot to say it earlier, this is a very intelligent and extremely well-meaning man. This man thinks he's doing nothing but good. And, and, and in many respects, he did do a lot of good. That's a fact. And so I'm not making an argument about his intentions. I'm making an argument about whether this makes any sense or not. And I'm arguing it does not. Now, Lincoln's qualifications about the power of the Supreme Court, which he admitted are very significant, right? But what are the qualifications? It can't be just one case. It can't be just a divided court. And then he men mentions that the other branches have their own duties. Because, you know, if you're the president of the United States and you swear an oath to uphold the Constitution, that means you have to have an opinion about what it means. And this other guy over here tells you, and he's a constitutional officer too, just like you, and he's taken the same oath, and he's got a disagreement with you about that. Do you have to resign your opinion? In fact, does your oath permit you to resign your opinion about that? So what that means is Lincoln understands this as a political document, that is to say a working document where powers are distributed, and those, those powers can argue with each other about the meaning of the document. And conflict among the branches is one of the key signals to the people that something serious is going on and they better think about it before they vote. And Lincoln makes this explicit beautifully in other places where one of his favorite phrases is, the constitutional majority shifting easily as circumstances change is the only true sovereign of a free people. Now, I want to make a point. Uh, Justice Brennan says in this essay in several places something true, and that is, he says that one of the purposes of the Constitution is to restrain the people themselves. And uh, he quotes Madison accurately. Madison says, in fact, the restraint, in paraphrase, the restraint would be most important among the strongest authorities, right? Whatever is strongest that would most need restraint. And the strongest thing is the people. So Brennan endorses that very much and says that some things are transcendent and the people could never interfere with them. Now, I want to contrast with something. Uh, Jefferson says famously, in all cases, the majority must rule. In all cases, the majority must rule. But for the rule to be rightful, it must be reasonable and protective of the rights of minorities. That means that it's wrong if the majority does a wrong. But who's got the power to stop them? Some minority? Because if that's true, sovereignty passes to them. Uh, the full account of Madison about the effect of the Constitution. And see, as I say, the Constitution is not full of beautiful language. It's a bunch of 
prescriptions how we're going to do stuff, right? It's, it's, it's wonderful, especially if you understand it. But the explanations of the Constitution by the people who wrote it, many of those are simply beautiful, especially by Madison and Hamilton, who had so much to do with the writing of it, and of course, who were the principal authors of the greatest commentary on it, one of the greatest political commentaries ever, the Federalist Papers. And when Madison gives his account of the purpose of the Constitution, as regards the people, he says, it is our reason alone that must be placed in control of the government. Our passions must be controlled by it. Now, if you think for a minute, that means that in either case, we are in charge of the Constitution and the government, right? It's just that the Constitution is contrived so that our decisions, which will take time and require delegations to more than one place and take a big process, one of the purposes Madison says of that is we should think before we act and we should talk a lot about things. That's why we are restrained from doing anything in the government except between elections. As we tape this, there's a really big election, very important going on right now, and there's a huge amount of argument about it. And it's way better to have the argument before the election than we have it after the election because reason is the faculty with which we argue. But there's no doubt in the founding that the ultimate control of the Constitution is in the people. In fact, they make the dang thing, right? They passed the Constitution, and the process by which they passed it disappeared. Now there's amending processes, but they're different by the, from the ratification process. And that means if God smiles on our republic, they thought, and I think, the people of the United States will never pass another law directly in the way they did the Constitution, they did it directly by electing people to conventions in their states. So this idea that there's some transcendent thing and that that gives a court power even against the people to represent that transcendent thing is wrong-headed because if you go to the real source of the transcendent thing, you will see that its central idea is that because human beings have a nature, they may rightly govern themselves, and no one may govern them except with their consent. And that is a practical political point. Nobody gets to govern anybody except they consent to it. But it's also a sublime philosophic point or a point about the being of things because human beings, they say, are not like horses. Thomas Jefferson says uh, the Declaration just means that some are not born with battles, saddles on their backs, nor other booted and spurred to ride them by the grace of God. Men are not like horses. They must always be treated like men. If a majority fails to do that, that majority is wrong, and the minority that is oppressed is right. But you can't appoint a minority, let alone a minority of five which is what it takes to make a majority on the Supreme Court, to be ultimately in charge of that. And I think Justice Brennan thinks you can. It's funny because uh, in this speech, you should go read it, it's easy to find. We can put it on our website. Um, in this speech, Justice Brennan both draws heavily on the authority of the founders and also denies that authority often. 
he says on the one hand, he quotes Madison in that sense that I just said about the government being able to control the people. And he says that that's transcendent, that that can never change. But then on the other hand, he says that when we go back and read what they meant and try to understand their, quote, values, which if you think about it, the word values is sort of a, a word we use now as a synonym for principles. Principles means first things. Values refers to things we value. It's more subjective in the way we use the term today. It doesn't have to be, but it is. So he says, when we try to find out their values, he says, it's very hard because there were a lot of them and they argued a lot and the record is not complete. And anyway, we live in another time. He says this sentence, he says, uh, we cannot fully grasp their wisdom because it is not the same thing as our vision. Now think about those two words, right? He might have said, their wisdom and our wisdom. Wisdom is the classical term for the accumulation of knowledge about things that never change. I, I regard the founders as having been very wise on many political points, and they spoke in the language of wisdom in the Declaration of Independence and other places. But our vision, that refers to how we see the world, right? And that means that that statement by itself about wisdom and vision is a departure from the final causes of the American Revolution, which I think Justice Brennan does not understand. I think he's never thought them through really well. And uh, one of my favorite things to say, and I'll say it with an apology, to all the lawyers who are watching, who I will now offend, and then they will attack me. Good. Um, I almost went to law school myself, decided to get an education. Where does this end up? Uh, my friend Ed Erler, who's teaching at Hillsdale this term, and a wise man, been in Imprimus, you can look him up, E-R-L-E-R, -E it's very wise and knows a lot. And in correction of me, he states right, lately, the courts are not anymore the least dangerous branch. And his point, I, I agree with that point. And his explanation is, they become the ally of the bureaucracy. The bureaucracy is the new way we make almost all the laws, right? Congress delegates to them authority over a subject, and then they make lots of rules. And the question always arises, often arises, does the rule violate the Constitution, just like laws, that question arises. And the court has adopted a, doc a doctrine in a case called Chevron versus, Chevron Corporation, the oil company, versus Natural Resources Defense Council. And in that document, it said that the court has a doctrine, which is now repeated many times, that in any ruling from an administrative agency, and of course there are gazillions of them, that they will uh, only test to see if the reading of the agency is a permissible reading of what Congress has said. And that gives those agencies very wide latitude. And, you know, we live in the age where the, the society in common can hardly function or do anything without some regulation to guide and direct and restrict it. And my own view is that that's very counterproductive and the opposite of constitutional government. But it's hard. It's so entrenched now. It's hard to imagine how we would run the country without all that. One of my businesses in my life and in my thinking all my life is to try to imagine how you would do that. And I do find a model, and that is in the operation of the Constitution of the United States for so very long. 
Another thing that comes from all of this, from this thinking of uh, Justice Brennan, can be seen in the career of Anthony Kennedy, who's a charming man and who's a Reagan appointee, I think. And uh, he has gravitated over the course of his career, especially on social issues, uh, you know, affecting the family, marriage, all that stuff, right? He was the decisive vote and wrote the opinion in the recent court case about gay marriage. Why has he done that, right? Well, I think in a, in a case called Planned Parenthood versus Casey, he states the reason for that. Where is that reason? I think I didn't write it down, but I'll quote it, roughly, paraphrase. He says, uh, the essential meaning of liberty is that we get to define our own existence. We get to, uh, our own concept of existence is the phrase. We get to uh, define the meaning uh, of things and define our own understanding of the mysteries of the universe. That's what freedom means. And I just want to point out two things about that. One is think how different that is from the Declaration of Independence. Because you see, in the Declaration of Independence, what we're saying to the king is that you are a thing and we are a thing. And it doesn't make any difference whether you like it or not. We are that thing. We are both that thing. You think that because your family was powerful and you inherited a lot of authority, you get to tell us what to do. That is the explicit statement that he makes in his address from the throne, answering the Declaration of Independence in 1776. But no, not so. You're like us. You're a human being. Just take Madison's very beautiful statement about if men were angels, no government would be needed. If angels were to govern men, neither internal nor external controls on the government would be necessary. If the King of England was in fact an angel, then you could give him all this power. But he's not. He's a man like us. You can't do it, right? And that's a fixity, see. This idea that we define for ourselves the conflict of our own existence is foreign language to all of that foreign language to the final causes that the historical record proves inspires the Constitution of the United States, which, which is the formal cause of the American government. The second thing to say about that is it doesn't work. It can't work. And I'll tell you why. In the 20th century, we have had these big movements, the purpose of which is to redefine the meaning of human existence. The doctrine goes like this. Uh, everything has changed. Now we know it. We can use our powers of science and reason to remake the world however we want it. A very different doctrine than the Declaration of Independence. Winston Churchill, whom I studied all my life, spent his life fighting that doctrine. I have uh, teaching a course right now on uh, Five contemporaries. They all knew each other. They, at least all of them knew more than one of the others. They are Winston Churchill and C.S. Lewis and Aldous Huxley and Arthur Kessler and uh, George Orwell. And they wrote these powerful tracts about totalitarian government, what it does to people, how awful it is. And the point is, Hitler and Stalin thought that they were redefining existence. Now, Justice Kennedy will say, 
that's not fair. They shouldn't have done that because they're interfering with other people's right to define their own existence. But I'll tell you why that argument doesn't work. If you deny Hitler that he can do that, then you are defining his right, defying, obstructing, overturning his right to define his own existence. His definition of his existence was that he was a historic man meant to remake the world. And that involved killing many people that he thought were in the way. Right? And so if the sovereign fact is that we are people who get to define our own existence, you'll never arbitrate successfully between the claims of Hitler and the claims of the Jews that he killed. It doesn't work. Whereas if you base yourself on the nature of the human being, then you will say that you should not put Jews in cattle cars because they are not cows. But of course, there's a limit in that conception of nature because that means that there are things you can't do to human beings. That means that their nature includes the way their families work, the way they grow up, the way they come to be. It includes their rational faculty, which means that they've got to be able to say what they want to. Right? And so that old idea of nature gives not only a direction, but a limit to the power of the law. Whereas this doctrine that we define what we are, whatever we want to be, that doctrine can go anywhere and is going anywhere very fast. It has turned the Constitution from what it was, which is a granting of authority always coupled with restraints on that authority. Don't miss the fact that the Constitution of the United States was written to make the central government stronger, but also to restrain that government and protect the authorities that the people have delegated to the states, which are reaffirmed in the Constitution. Now, under these new doctrines, the Constitution becomes an engine for the growth of government. And because it still works like the Constitution, if, as Justice Brennan says, the, the activist government of our day is right and is protected in the Constitution, that means it's harder for anybody to stop it because it has all the constitutional protections. It's hard to amend the Constitution. All of that, all of that is there. The Constitution was meant to be stable and hard to change. If its meaning is successfully reinterpreted, then of course it becomes an obstacle to freedom instead of what it was supposed to be. So last question is what do we do about this? Um, Hamilton writes that the Supreme Court is the least dangerous branch of the government. I think he's right, except that it's changed and the Constitution has changed. Uh, now it's an agent of bureaucratic government. The most important thing to know about the Constitution, there are many very important things to know about it, that it's the form of the American government and people, uh, that its uh, structure is the most important fact about it, the way it works together, the way it's separated and works together. But the most important thing is the Constitution of the United States of America is the most effective tool ever invented to guarantee that a people can remain for a long time in control of their government. The Constitution is the people's document. It does not belong 
to the Supreme Court. It does not belong to the Congress, and it does not belong to the President. It belongs to the people who are governed, and it is a wonderful mechanism to keep them in control for a long time and provide to them all the protections of law which are necessary to human life. So I think what to do is to make that point. I think what to do is to remind people that the Constitution is still there and it's been little changed. We should live under it. We should act in the ways that it's available to us to act under the Constitution. And those start, by the way, not just with voting, which is the prime and most direct way we can act. Those start with talking and thinking and arguing. And that argument is going on now. Every one of us can be uh, an informed participant in that argument if we just spend our time right. That's why I'm proud that you're watching this, mean to help, I ask you to correct us when we're wrong, and promise you that we will be an agent to build an informed citizenry. Thank you. Cut. Right. Cut. Look at that.